Well, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Hi, I am Timothy Maurice, your behavioral psychologist, and I am absolutely delighted to have one of our own, a behavioral scientist, Mike Rucker. He is the author of Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Mike, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, same here. It's a lot of pressure on you, though. You can't write a book <laughs> about fun and we not have fun, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> So let's do it. Speaking of fun, we start this episode with a fun feature called Inside the Mind, where I give you seven options, uh, seven questions that have two options. You can only choose one. Can we do that? Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Number one, drum roll, please. <laughs> Roller coaster ride or white water rafting? So I would have to pick whitewater rafting. Anyone that's read the fun habit, you know, the book that just came out knows I love roller coasters, but I use the analogy of, uh, whitewater rafting with regards to saying that we can bias our lives towards one side of the stream or the other. And so if okay. I had to choose, I think because autonomy is such an important construct for me in white water rafting, you get the same thrill and exhilaration, but you have some control over the outcome, right? Where roller coasters have a predetermined outcome architected by someone else. So I think in the grand scheme of things, I would pick <laughs> the water, <laughs> the white water. Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck? You know, this one's just going to be nostalgia. I've always resonated with Mickey Mouse. Maybe it's because I do like leadership, you know, but he's certainly on the top of the Disney pyramid. So as a <laughs> moniker, I'm going to pick him. Cool. Dancing or singing? Dancing all day long. If you had the option to choose one of these games, a basketball game or a soccer game? So this is very timely. My son has levitated towards basketball. And so I think that attraction to enjoying my time with him and his awe and wonder in, you know, picking up this new sport is just so fascinating right now that uh, basketball is my answer. How old is he? Seven. Nice. Yeah. Ice cream on a cone or in a cup? So that's going to be dependent on mood, but... <laughs> I definitely love chocolate dip cones. So I'm going to now play out, draw outside the lines and say on a chocolate dipped cone. Love it. Hiking or skiing? That's pretty close. Why did the last one have to be the hardest? I've read so much now on the importance of nature. I've definitely undervalued it and still understanding how good it is for our well-being. Um, not just in the moment, but longitudinally. So I would say hiking just because of the research behind how it can contribute to our happiness. Cool. We do have one more. And oh, sorry. This, I'm bad at counting, one, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this one, this one is quite deep. Prepare yourself. I'm, I'm ready. Dressing, dressing up as Santa Claus or a clown? Santa Claus. And I'm not going deep on this one. It's just my kids <laughs> hate clowns and everyone loves Santa Claus. So I love to yeah. spread joy and clowns seem to have interesting consequences in, in that regard. You know, sometimes yeah. they don't spread joy. <laughs> Certainly like Patch Adams and his story, 
So I think in certain contexts, clowns are amazing, but I think through and through you have a lot more probability of spreading joy through impersonating Santa Claus than you do a clown. So I'll stick with Santa Claus. Well, thank you for allowing us to go inside your mind. Since we have a global audience, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I know you're in North Carolina at the moment, but long before you went to North Carolina or you moved to North Carolina, tell us a little bit about where you come from. Yeah, so I grew up in a small little town called Davis, California. Um, it was quite impactful uh, on me because the town is centered around a university. Essentially, most people have heard of UC Berkeley, and Davis yep. was essentially an extension of that um, so it's, it's now got quite the name for itself internationally at the time. It was essentially competing with Berkeley, you know, um, and people's safety school. I mean, that's just the, the honest truth. Now I think they're somewhat on more equal footing and how that impacted my life is both my parents were professors. So the family trade is certainly research. You know, I grew up in this publisher parish paradigm. And so I think that it certainly affected you know, um, where I derived my self-worth for better or worse. And so you know, now I'm unpacking, you know, some of the benefit of growing up in that manner, but then also, you know, some of the negative impacts that's had, you know, with regards to, um, you know, my modus operandi, as it were, right? Mm. Yeah. With their rigorous publishing schedule, do you think they were having fun? I think my dad certainly was, but he's an interesting cat. So in the context of my work, sometimes I think, well, let me back up. So fast forward to when I really got into psychology in general, it was through the mentorship, which just happened serendipitously through a gentleman by the name of Dr. Michael Gervais. And a lot of people know him now because he previously was the uh, performance psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks. So now Russell Wilson has some of his own problems, right? He's not being as celebrated mm -hmm. as he was when he was a, a Seahawk. But back when he was winning Super Bowls, some of the credit for his success was attributed to um, Dr. Gervais. And I was just lucky before all that happened to get early access to him. And he was really looking at that time into peak performance. And why that's important is I think that when you really want to be the top of your game, sometimes you're willing to relinquish the rewards of just pro-social behavior and other things because you were so focused on that. And that's a very small subset of people. And we admire them through things like survivorship bias, right? Because we don't look at all the folks that have failed and ruined their lives to try and mm. climb that mountain, but haven't. And so... I have been able to unpack like how 95% of us shouldn't really, um, you know, at least use that as a script, but at the same time, certain people like, and my dad is one of them. I think it garners so much joy in the fact that he's contributed to 50 years of moving biochemistry forward. He'll be the first to admit he didn't have the best relationship with me and my brother because of that, you know, because he really prioritized work over all else. He's definitely in the minority because we now know through record levels of burnout and so many people that don't feel like they're living a fulfilling life. That's probably not the path for most people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that. When, where did you study? 
I wanted to piss them off. So I went to a state school in California. I got my undergrad at Chico State and then I redeemed myself by getting my MBA at University of Southern California. Lovely. <laughs> didn't, didn't Sam Harris go to University of Southern California? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure. And I should because I'm a huge fan. Actually, that's one of the commonalities that has mended the relationship between me and my father because we're both uh, lifelong subscribers <laughs> to waking up. So I should know that. Um, I, for some reason, I thought he was associated with MIT, uh, and maybe it no. could be both, right? Uh, do I have that no, wrong? No, he's not. He's not. He's, he's somewhere. He went, he got his, uh, neuroscience. Um, he did his neuroscience work somewhere in California. And I think, I think it may have been UCLA or, or I'm not sure, but let, let's check that out. And then you know, I'll put it in the show notes. All so right, for those who don't good. know Sam Harris, he's a neuroscientist. Uh, he has, Popularly known for his podcast as well as his waking up app, really focused on all sorts of sorts of work such as psychedelics and meditation and all sorts of other one wonderful stuff. And he's recently gotten off Twitter, which has been really, really interesting and sparked my own thinking around my relationship with yeah, Twitter. I think but that that is an interesting I mean, we'll get past it really quick, but I've been fascinated too. His uh, fascination with that because, you know, he's sort of deviated from sharing wisdom to uh, uh, somewhat attacking Elon through Instagram, you know, as a way of um, protest, I suppose. And yeah. uh, the criticism is interesting. You know, uh, I don't know if it's all warranted, but to sort of pick up your toys and leave the playground instead of you know, staying in the town square and fighting fire with fire is an interesting choice. Especially it is, really. since he's been so critical of ideology, right? I mean, you said what he's up to now, but he really made a name for himself taking a secular um, approach to these debates about ideology and things of that nature, which is extremely interesting, but he's always tried to work in a collaborative way. And so the fact that it's more reductionist at this point um, is an interesting change for him. It's, you know, this is a great segue into your book and your work. Sam Harris, and for those of you, again, who don't know him, Sam Harris, Google Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson debate. These people are some of the smartest people I know, and irrespective of what you think about whether or not you think they're left, white, right, centrist, or whatever you think, they're highly intelligent. But neither of them seem like they're having fun. <laughs> and I think you, you get, you'll get my point when you watch them, if you don't know who they are. They are riveting conversations, but both of them are sort of monotone, sort of really deep thinkers. And I've thought about this a lot. And I, we didn't mean to go in this direction, but it's perfect. What is the role between having fun and just purpose and delivering meaningful work? Because do you agree? Do you think they're having fun? I don't know them in that context, right? Because we see their professional work. So oftentimes what they put forward is a very curated aspect of what they're doing. Um, I have looked at some of Peterson's work before, you know, he really became a YouTube celebrity because to your point, he was, I mean, he was a Harvard researcher, right? So this isn't, yeah. you know, and, and obviously um, Sam Harris equally has contributed to science and then you popularize your ideology and it becomes more lay media, right? With regards to Peterson, 
he has looked at some of the gender issues with regards to how you value time and has certainly mm-hmm. been critical of the masculine approach to overproductivity and how it can really lead to interesting outcomes and has celebrated the fact that a lot of professional women are able to actualize that living through a meritocracy and being intoxicated by that, like, oh, I just need to get the next carrot. I need to get to the next carrot and never being fulfilled by really where your feet are at is an interesting relationship towards how males look at achievement and females look at achievement. And so I find his research interesting in the fact that both of them really do probably derive a, some enjoyment from their message resonating and are so focused on the outcome of that maybe, you know, leads to the argument of, is that the right way? Cause I mean, in short, the science behind that is once you get too extrinsically motivated and find your pleasure in being validated by others, that's a pretty slippery slope, right? Because yeah. you don't have yeah. complete control over how that happens. Um, I would say both of them are having fun. Most podcasters and content creators aren't doing it, you know, just because it's not fun. So I think they're both okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you made me think about the separation between what's happening behind the scenes and the extraordinary force and friction you face when you become a celebrity. I think those are two separate conversations, right? And I think both of them have hit a stratosphere where coming up against the resistance of those who only click on sound bites and try to judge you for those sound bites. That's a separate dynamic entirely. And I really do hope they're having fun. When did but you I did give having, a tip of the hat yeah. to Peterson, right? Shining a light on the fact that women probably have things a little bit more figured out than men in that context. A quick tip of the hat to Sam Harris. And I actually write about this in the book. He's really done well shining a light on that construct that I just discussed, this idea that we are sometimes guided towards too much external validation. So in the Waking Up app, he had used game mechanics, and this very much pertains to your message with the podcast, right, to instill more behavior on the app. So you got all of these accolades if you meditated more for you know, and badges and things of that nature. And he realized that instead of these acts of mindfulness that he was really trying to encourage, he had created this artificial currency, which he calls spiritual materialism, um, and was getting people more focused on, you know, how cool they were at meditating or how much they had done and like sharing it on social media and looking for feedback in that manner than really focusing on the work itself. And so I give him credit too, at least realizing he was part of the problem and walking back some of those design flaws within his digital health technology. That's that's incredible. And I think partially I have seen it in my own work is, you know, you can't just hope for fun. You really have to design it. And I we're going to get to that in a moment, but I want to start with what are you, some of your earliest memories of having fun in your own personal life? Yeah, I really found my joy because I'm an extrovert in pro-social behavior, you know, having fun with friends, engaging in activities of mastery. You know, I got into triathlons at a really young age and then also just enjoying, 
you know, kind of the fruits of art. So I've always been a huge music fan, you know, maybe not the most healthy, but, uh, you know, got latched on to raves at a, a very young age. And so again, that's why I chose dancing over singing because that collective effervescence you find, you know, in kind of trance-like states being amongst a ton of people that are enjoying themselves, those types of activities, high arousal, um, being in groups are the things that I found fun and still do to this day. Can an introvert have as much fun as an extrovert? I believe so. But one of the things I unpack in the book, and this work comes from Jeannie Sai out of Stanford, is that the Western ideal of fun has really been overly marketed to us, right? So, you know, these low arousal activities are equally as pleasurable. And again, my, you know, I have a kind of discrete scientific definition of fun, and that's anything on the positive side of valence, right? So anything that we think is pleasurable that we're attracted to. So the construct that makes certain things fun for one and not fun for others tends to be the arousal level, right? The idea of going to rage against the machine for my wife is not fun at all, right? And so her fun is found really engaging in a, in a book poolside and not being bothered by people because she does have an introverted slant. And that is just as fun by every emotional sort of measurement yet you know, you're never going to see that picture as being fun in a magazine or on Instagram. And so I think that's one thing that is, you know, requires a radical course correction, that all of those things are fun. Yet a lot of folks are like, I guess I'm just not a fun person because we've been oversold on this idea that, you know, you need to be with five influencer friends clicking your heels on a beach or it's not fun, right? And so these (laughs) social norms can be really interesting headwinds, you know, and and create dissonance, which is such a shame because all of these things are restorative depending on your slant and your preferences. Let's talk about how tragedy can inspire us to have more fun. So I think what I've unpacked is that it's clear that when you have a traumatic event, it makes you have an intimate relationship with time. And once you understand that your time here is finite you tend to be better at walking things backwards. Like, holy cow, I only have 40 years left. Or if you're a parent, holy cow, I only have 13 summers left with my six-year-old. Like in that context of my life in totality, that's a very short time. And so you make better choices about how you spend your time. When you think time is infinite and there's weird biological reasons for that, that if we're not made aware of them can be quite systemic, right? It's really interesting from a biological standpoint that everything in our being is meant to keep us alive as long as possible. And so as long as you believe in evolutionary science, that's even true for our cognition. Like we don't want to think about death because that's not what we're trying to do as a person, right? We're trying to procreate and we're trying to stay as alive as long as possible. And so it really does take a deliberate act to understand, no, you know, you only have a certain amount of time you can cash in. And so when you do have some form of trauma, say divorce, you know, say a near death experience, the death of a loved one, then you, you're like, whoa, okay, maybe I need to start making better choices. And you can also deprioritize the endless pursuit for financial gain. And so it's clear and a host of empirical research backs me up on this. Once you t- start looking at affluence through the lens of time rather than money, you start to make better choices. And those people are hands down happier than the ones that are kind of endlessly pursuing, you know, financial success. 
Einstein was really big on play. You know, he believed that play was one of the highest forms of research. Share a little bit about your chapter on play. Yeah. And why so, it's so important. Well, let's focus on Einstein and, and the reasoning behind that. Um, the, the chapter on play is more of about an acronym rather than play itself. So I'm going to yes. answer your question with regards to why this is important. And this is some of my original research as well, but you know, what Einstein was onto is that when we're not in a playful state, we tend to operate through heuristics and our own internal algorithms, right? And there's reasonings for that because when we're aging adults, we have so much incoming information coming at us from all sides now more than ever, right? In the information age, it's like overwhelming. So we need these things, you know, even if it does incorporate biases so that we can filter out all of the noise and get the signal so that we can just operate in life. But as we learn to operate in that space and we're not playful and we're not open to new possibilities, we're not think thinking in a nonlinear fashion, our curiosity and the ability to coalesce ideas that might not necessarily go together, but create the most innovation, innovative solutions um, start to dissipate, right? We lose those skills. And so to be the best versions of ourselves, to be able to sort of get outside of our own internal scripts becomes one of the most useful ways to become more productive and be more innovative. Recently, I got buried in a Twitter. You know, every so often you comment on somebody who's really popular, speaking of Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson. I mean, if you click, if you comment on anything of Jordan Peterson for the next week, your phone is going to just be, you really have to turn the notifications off. And I got caught up in a thread about mystery. And I was thinking, you know, most of us are a mystery unto ourselves. I had a neurologist on a podcast once and she broke down from the instinct for thought to want to say something and how your nerves and how your these feelings sort of start to surface through your limbic system up through your mind and eventually your conscious and through your tongue how much of a an extraordinary miracle it is just to have and communicate a thought and and i was thinking to myself I'm like mystery is both discomforting and and majestic and powerful Tell us a little bit about your research and your thoughts about mystery. Yeah. So that's one that I've been sitting with for quite some time because it's still very existential, right? And so yeah, funny yeah. enough, <laughs> my taste there right at a very practical level was also um, being introduced to a neuroscientist, Lisa Feldman Barrett, that was I was fortunate enough to spend some time with. And so this idea that when sort of the magical ebbs and flows of life, right? Whether that be a small flower that somehow is growing in the crack of concrete, despite all of, you know, the urban design that we have, nature still thriving, or us, you know, on two different continents, being able to talk to each other because some scientists is, you know, has learned to beam waves, you know, from this planet <laughs> down to space, you know, just how amazing that is and being stuck in that mystery and accepting that you don't need to know everything. And so we spend the first half of our lives really trying to make meaning, right? And for all of us, it's different. You know, we create this 
subjective reality by, you know, adhering to social norms to some degree. So, you know, in a weird sort of way, it's this mass hallucination that we share. Anyone that's read Sapiens, whether you like the book or not, has to be fascinated with the fact that money is essentially made up. Government is essentially made up. You know, spirituality is likely not made up. You know, again, going back to Sam Harris, but dogma certainly is, right? I mean, you know, maybe yours is right, but then that means the other 299 are wrong, right? So all of these social norms that we adhere to are essentially a facet of human creativity, right? And once you understand that, then you can start to unpack. There is a big mystery there. And a lot of what the way you think the world works is just what you've created in your own head. And once you have a certain amount of emotional maturity, you can peel back all of those layers of conditioning and going, wow. You know, and once you're able to do that, the reason this quote unquote mystery is amazing is you can realize that life is more about fit and, and where you are rather than rank. And when we rank ourselves compared to others, that's the heavy weight of the world, right? Like, why am I not, you know, at eight when, you know, I, that's where I feel like I should be or whatever. All of this, you know, problems of the self, right? Where the ego trips us up and makes us ruminate. When we understand that we're just a small part of a much bigger picture, then the problems that were weighing us down also become small. And it can be a really freeing space, whether you're spiritual or not, right? And so that's where I find the mystery quite amazing. My favorite chapter is about hard fun. <laughs> you know, you know, I have been interested in how pushing somebody to the edge of what's possible inside of them is when you ask someone, do they want to do it? They're going to say, no, do you want to wake up at... <laughs> do you want to wake up at 4 a.m. to prepare for a triathlon or whatever? No one's going to say it, that they really want to do this. But some of our greatest joys come from being stretched to that level. And so I'm interested in you sharing a little bit about your views and really helping people unpack their thoughts on this. Yeah, I think there's two things, right? One, a lot of times things aren't as hard as you make them out to be. So, you know, the first half of that chapter is really how do you add elements that make whatever is needed to do, you know, to get done, to engage in that hard activity a little bit more enjoyable so you do the work, right? And so, you know, in that chapter, I unpacked how I made some of the grueling aspects of training for an Ironman a little bit easier so that I actually did the work and then ultimately was able to accomplish this huge thing. The other aspect, and it's really interesting because I'm getting interviewed about it um, because REI has put their own spin on it. So they've classified it type one and type two fun. And I'll, I'll tie in why that's important. Because for them, uh, I have, you already kind of alluded to it. I have something called the play model, um, which stands for pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding. And we won't go into the model, but the living quadrant really is about pushing yourself and that some of the aspects of doing things in the living quadrant might not be fun in the moment, but they really allow you to have these amazing memories to relish and celebrate. And REI has classified my living quadrant as type two fun. And why that is important to answer your question is that when we're doing things that really stretch us, that lead to personal growth, that lead to betterment, lead us to understand ourselves a little bit better, or at its best, get us into those places of mystery, you know, like a hard hike that gets us to a majestic, you know, vista where we're just like 
how is how did the world create something so beautiful? Or again, you know, we we keep giving a nod to Sam Harris, you know, engaging in the waking up app so much that you finally get what he's talking about, where you're living in a space above valence and kind of above your emotion. And you can really actualize like how much of your brain is really just a computer, right? So all of these things that might not necessarily be in the moment, but that lead to just really fond memories and memories that are encoded so richly that when you look back at them, they almost dilate time. And so one, there's growth and betterment in these, you know, kind of edge work activities. But then also when we're doing the hard stuff, we are, we build resilience building blocks because when we're encoding our brain and creating cognitive reserve through these memories, not only do we have better resilience, but there's also physiological benefits as well, right? We know that when we tax the brain in this manner, we stave off things like cognitive decline and um, are able to enjoy our lives that much longer. Wow. What has surprised you as a researcher? You know, you've stumbled on something that just kind of like, whoa. Yeah, I think the biggest light bulb moment for me was stumbling on a piece of research called the hedonic flexibility principle. And so this is an amazing piece of research, huge sample size, 28,000 participants in this particular study. Stanford, MIT, and Harvard, you know, has the, the accolades of those brand name institutions. And so what they were looking at was, you know, this whole idea, are we pleasure seeking animals at our core? And so what they found, not surprisingly, is that people that are burnt out, that aren't living a joyful life, seek out poor activities to escape that discomfort, right? They're the ones that, you know, spend too much time mindlessly scrolling social media. They're the ones that come home, plop on the couch and just kind of channel surf, you know, aren't really deliberate about how they're spending their leisure time. They're the ones that will engage in poor forms of escapism, like drinking and things of that nature. The surprising finding were the ones that were deliberate about taking some time off the table for themselves so that their fun cup was full. They were the ones showing up the next day to work more productive because they had the vigor and vitality to tackle the day. So that's one key insight, right? They weren't seeking out more pleasure. They were actually looking to engage their work day, you know, with more fortitude because they knew what was going to happen after. But I think the more surprising finding too was those were the ones that were seeking out the harder challenges. So not only were they having more fun and had more energy, but they were the innovators. They were the ones, you know, and sometimes that happened within work and sometimes it happened outside. So, you know, some of them were, you know, really crushing at work. Others were doing just fine at work because maybe they were working for others. But then on the weekends, they were tackling Mount Everest or they were amazing kite surfers because, you know, they, it, it was this upward spiral, you know, of fun. And then, you know, again, having their best day at work and then enjoying themselves, you know, really a restorative life rather than this depleting life of a downward spiral that so many of us find ourselves in today, which is so unfortunate, especially here in the US, you're just, you know, burnout rates across all vocations are at all time high. I spend a lot of time researching physicians in particular, and 2023 is the worst year yet for them. 63% of physicians are reporting being so burnt out that they can't really even enjoy their lives or vocation. And in that vocation in particular, just as a micro example, it has impacts that doesn't just affect the physicians, which is bad enough, but ripples throughout 
patient outcomes as well, right? Because once you're in that state, you start to lose empathy. And with physicians in particular, once physicians lose empathy for their patients, you see patient outcomes fall off a cliff. And I imagine you'd see those same dire consequences throughout all sorts of different vocations. So that's why a radical course corrective <laughs> regarding fun, you know, is, is, is something that we need. And you saw that need with regards to sleep deprivation in the nineties. Remember when we were all like, yeah, let's just grind it out. And we, you know, mm. we're all listening mm. to Gary V, you know, Gary V was, <laughs> you know, the, the nineties Huberman and, and even he now walks it back because the science has suggested if you're not getting at least seven hours, you don't have some form of proper sleep hygiene, you're not going to be a very productive person. So all these things that you hope to accomplish aren't going to get done anyways, right? And so we now know that depriving yourself of sleep is an asinine proposition. We're now learning the same with leisure. If you're not enjoying yourself at least a few hours out of the week, then you're not likely the person you want to be anyways. And so you know, again, you need to assess why is that? Why am I deriving all my self-worth from productivity when I should be at least enjoying some of the time that's been gifted for me here on earth? So immediately after listening to this, someone clicks um, on Amazon or wherever to, to buy your book. But in the meantime, they're like, it's going to take three days to get to me. What can I start doing right now? How can I start shifting, designing my life in a way where I can start having fun? Yeah, so I think the first thing to do is just becoming self-aware, right? And so be mindful of how you spent the last 168 hours of your life, which is one week. There's 168 hours in one week's time. You definitely don't want to look at this as just another to-do on your to-do list, right? That's essentially a facet of posit- you know, toxic positivity, so look at the the rhythms and the schedule of your life. You know, for some people, it's as easy as just opening up the health meter in their iPhone or Android device to see, you know, how much time they're spending on social media or perhaps Gmail for folks that, you know, answer too many emails. You know, we call that admin work. You know, you're answering emails that don't really move you forward. Look at the spots that you could potentially integrate better ways of using your time in your schedule. And then figure out what is it that might have been devoid in your life that you want to get back to. So is that some friendships, you know, friends that you haven't seen for a while? Is it a hobby that you used to really enjoy, but for whatever reason, you let go to the wayside? So you need to be a little bit premeditated about, you know, building that list so you can be honest with yourself. Like, what is it that I want to add back to my schedule? Once you figure out how you can you know, find a little bit of time so that you have the ability to put things back in your schedule. Try it for two or three weeks. Generally, the first, you know, week when we change any rhythm, when we change our behavior, seems a little bit harder than it should. Like, ah, you know, this was a silly idea. Do it for two or three weeks and check in with yourself week four and see if the hedonic flexibility principle is true. Are you now excited that you're actually doing some things that are filling up your cup And are you approaching other areas of your life as a better version of yourself? And I'll tell you nine times out of 10, you know, again, as, you know, fanciful as it sounds now, you just do that intervention for two to three weeks. And, you know, by the fourth week, you'll be like, you'll get into that upward spiral rather than that downward spiral. You'll see that you're producing more anyways. You'll now go, wow, I'm actually having fun. And so paradoxically, I'm a better version of myself, but I'm also enjoying myself too. And then it will lead to better, you know, life choices, which is amazing. And so one of the really topical, 
um, things that I suggest is just look at all of the data that's come out in the last four weeks, especially if you do spend time on social media about all the positive outcomes of countries in earnest that have gone to a four day work week, right? Wow. Productivity's up. Uh, sick days are way down and, uh, you know, financial me- measures haven't moved. So there's been no impact on the bottom line. You can look at that same sort of efficacy and know that it's going to apply to your same life too. So why not have fun, be a little bit more productive and start enjoying things. And the best part is once you get into that state through something that psychology calls social contagion, the folks around you will be in a better place too. So it's not just for yourself. It's for all those that you love and care about that are around you as well, both employees and your family and friends. Mike Rucker, thank you for joining us on the Brain to Brand Show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure.